Very good. Uh, hi, I'm Mike Shea, and I am here on the DM's Deep Dive on the Don't Split the Podcast Network. And I am here with Robin Laws. Uh, Robin, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Robin D. Laws, a writer and game designer. You may know me from such games as uh, the Gumshoe System, including uh, the games The Ezoterrorists, uh, Ashen Stars, and the upcoming Yellow King role-playing game. Also, uh, Feng Shui 2, and uh, in the uh, DM space, a uh, long time ago, I wrote a book called Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering that's still available as a PDF from Steve Jackson Games. Uh, I'm the author of the book Hamlet's Hit Points, which we're going to talk about uh, quite a bit, I think. And also uh, GM advice sections in both the third edition and fourth edition D&D DMG2. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, which have uh, both of them sort of took the ideas in those uh, original uh, books, particularly Robin's Laws, sort of for, forward and then specifically into D&D. And so consequently, some of the DNA of those books is even in uh, fifth edition, which I understand mm -hmm. is uh, one of yep. your big focuses. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so uh, you have, there's probably a million things we could talk about, but the very specific topic that I wanted to talk about here on, here on the deep dive, we like to pick one particular topic that's, that's apt for, uh, hence, for, for... Hence the name. Hence the name, deep dive, this, right. This is we, not this... This is not the scattershot rigor. Right, we don't this just, is, yeah, right, we don't cover it. It's actually a cover. We just talk about whatever we want to talk about. How do you how do you feel about the politics these days? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we like to focus down on one particular topic. And uh, it, I, I had the opportunity to read Hamlet's Hit Points uh, about a month ago. And it really took a lot of my ideas and thoughts about pacing and threw them out the window and uh, made me think about it much, much different. And I'm, I'm, I'm very excited that you can be on the show to specifically talk about that topic of pacing and story beats and uh, what we can do to, to, to bring these into, their, into our game. Um, one of the things I like to do on the show is uh, uh, kind of dive right into the meat with uh, sort of your top three tips for uh, improving the pacing and for uh, monitoring story beats uh, in the games that we run. What would, your, what would your top three tips be? Uh, number one tip, uh, and probably the other two tips are variations of the number one tip, is read the room. Pay attention to uh, how much attention and focus the other players in the room are having. Uh, it's uh, surprisingly often as a GM, because so much of it is about talking, that you can kind of, if you're not careful, get lost in what you're saying and uh, lose how what you're saying is being received. And in fact, if there is a uh, flaw of the geek mind, it is often a, a blind spot in focusing on other people's reactions and knowing what they're on about. So pay attention to the mood of the room and see who is engaged. Um, it used to be a little easier to tell who is engaged and who is disengaged in the pre-fart in the pre-smartphone era, uh, because uh, people you. You could tell people were bored because they'd pull out a comic book or they'd read another book. And that was a telltale thing. Now people have gotten much better at sort of sneakily looking at their phone and uh, and sort of half paying attention. And in a weird way, we can maybe get into uh, later. That may be actually sort of a good thing that people split their attention more and are focused even hmm. when they don't seem to be. But always I want, I want to ask you more about that. Let me write that down. Um, the next thing is uh, emotional rhythm, which is the uh, basically everything that Hamlet's hit points is talking about, is that uh, people's engagement with a narrative depends on variance, a rhythm of uh, this and then that, this and then that. And what those two things uh, specifically mean are uh, an oscillation between hope, uh, things going well, and fear, things going badly. Um, the great thing about role playing is because it's usually so extremely goal focused is that you know what the uh, doing well for the uh, player characters is generally and doing poorly is generally. And so uh, when uh, things have been going very badly for them for a long time, it's time to throw in something that perks everybody up, that makes them feel good, that reminds them that they're having fun. And, consequent and also the other thing, uh, a much less common problem is that if things are going too well for uh, the player characters that you need to throw a wrench in. But that's sort of the thing that kind of goes without saying. It's the first one that is uh, uh, really uh, the key. And another thing is just that uh, mood can have 
to do with more than just what's actually happening to the characters. It could also reflect what's happening to the players. And in that, I recommend uh, keeping a really close watch on stuff that's happening that's not the story, that's not the action, and doing as much as you can to edit it out. So uh, the classic example is, let's all suddenly in the middle of play, start talking about the Star Trek pilot and whether you mm -hmm. liked it or not. Well, you know, save that till later. Um, so, uh, so I'm splitting off into more than one tip here. Um, so for example, I'll always make sure everybody has enough time to sit and chat and finish discussing whatever the nerd news of the week is before you get into the game. Make sure you've got enough time for everybody to chat. That can be a little tricky if uh, people arrive at different times, but still make sure that you have time for uh, people to chat. But when they do it in game, uh, be really ruthless about cutting them off. And, well, let's talk about that, uh, this after the game. Um, and if you're the one as GM bringing in the digressions, stop doing that, man. Uh, that's <laughs> weirdly enough. You I am, I am, I am, yeah, I, I, I'm laughing because I do that. Right. So, uh, so the number one thing about maintaining focus then is to be focused yourself. Um, uh, another example of, which is, I think gets us more into the realm of D&D, is uh, rules arguments. Uh, a rules argument, as far as I'm concerned, is off topic. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, if you as a player want to convince me, the DM, that uh, I am ruling the wrong way on a particular spell or crunchy bit or what have you, and that's simpler in D&D 5 because they are much more focused on empowering the GM to, or DM to do exactly that. Uh, but in any version of the game, even uh, uh, three or, you know, it's uh, Stepchild uh, Pathfinder, the ones that are really crunchy, I give the player 90 seconds to make their case. And after that, I rule. And it's mm -hmm. like, if you want to argue this after the game mm -hmm. or the future, how we're going to adjudicate this situation every future time, we can take more time for you to make your case. But mm -hmm. in game, when you're interrupting the story to argue a rules lawyer thing, you've mm -hmm. got 90 seconds of bam. Mm -hmm. And uh, weirdly enough, when you do that, they're never actually interested in arguing the rule afterwards because <laughs> that's a play that's all about sort of grabbing spotlight time and grabbing control. And so uh, another thing to look out for in pacing is that we typically think of the GM as being in charge of pacing, but of course the GM is really just a, a traffic cop between the players and some players, of course, will slow down the story. And so you have to be careful to look out for the different symptoms of story slowing. And rules lawyering is actually just another way of grabbing focus and power by mm -hmm. taking it away from everybody else. Mm -hmm. That ideally, a role-playing session is about everybody contributing something together that moves forward. Mm -hmm. But a lot of but a lot of uh, players will uh, try to gain emotional power in a room full of people by pulling the focus onto them by stopping what's ever going on. And mm -hmm. so you also, for example, have to make sure when you're looking at characters' uh, concepts to watch out for the players who like to give themselves the power to veto what the other players want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and unfortunately, in D&D, one of those is hard-baked into the game, which is the paladin, right? Mm -hmm. You have the traditional uh, setup where the uh, other murder hobo players always have to ask permission of the paladin to do anything. So <laughs> you have to be really careful when someone wants to play the paladin that they're going to play them in an interesting way. Yeah, I see it more. Just, I see it more as lawful good characters these days. Paladins uh, now sort of have a wider alignment range and right. Yeah. Um, yeah so, uh, but yeah, but also look at yeah, sure, look out for the cleric who says no or right. whoever it is, um, so that. Uh, and there are ways to deal with that uh, and ask them to play a more dimensioned character who is pulled in several directions mm -hmm. rather than just always, I'm the beacon of righteousness who by coincidence, uh, every session we get to have an argument for half an hour over where right. everybody has permission to go and for move the story forward. Right. Um, and so watch out for, character, for characters or players who are saying no all the time and work for ways to say, well, uh, you actually say yes to this. Why do you say yes? Mm -hmm. So that's a, a, a another uh, technique that is great for pacing is 
um, and you get this also in premise rejection, right? Where you uh, say have a horror scenario, and then the players say, "Well, I don't know why I would go down into the sunken crypt where the ghouls are, because this is a story about people who go down into the sunken crypt. Your job, players, is to create characters right. who would do that. Yep. Yep. And so, yep. rather than give them the chance to say no, uh, you either start in media res. You are in the ghoul crypt." Uh, I think a, a stronger way to deal with that is to, is to use the Socratic method to have them supply the answer that you need. So the answer is not, are you the sort of person who would go into the ghoul crypt, but rather, why do you have a burning need to go into the ghoul crypt? Mm -hmm. And so that allows them to exercise their creativity to contribute to the uh, game experience to help build into the premise but it's something that keeps you moving forward. Mm -hmm. uh, and, that, and so that's another you know, common way for uh, players to exercise veto over the GM, but unfortunately, if that's also a veto over the story. So you have right. to make sure that players uh, don't do that and look for ways to circumvent that, that uh, right. move you quickly past that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that one's an interesting. I was actually just writing about that um, Yesterday, yesterday and today, I have a uh, tips for new dungeon masters guide, and that 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 idea of like it it's some it, it is the players. So it's the DM's responsibility to bring it up. The fact that it's the player's responsibility for their character to have a reason to adventure with the group, right? And you can have lots of reasons, but it's, especially in when we think about like a five E D and D game, you know, there's you, you, the character should have a built-in, baked-in reason to want to adventure with the party. And it, it solves so many problems when when that's you know I've seen that it solves a lot of problems when that's wired in and it does it can seem counterintuitive to people because they want to build rich characters from a wide range of different sources and I want to be the aristocrat who has spent all the time with the king and I hate these scummy adventurers and you're like okay I have no idea how I'm going to get you to want to go into a crypt with them right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah and often the way to frame that is if this is a TV show. You are one of the series regulars, and you're involved in the action every week. Right. right. Why is that? Why is because that? Because otherwise, the show doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, for example, in in the Yellow King, in one of the segments in that, uh, you are playing uh, soldiers in an alternate universe war, uh, and your uh, each adventure assumes that you will not only uh, perform the mission that you're given by your superiors, but when you get there, you'll find something weird is going on. And you will investigate that too. Mm -hmm. And so it's the responsibility of the players, particularly the one playing the lieutenant, uh, to always supply the reason why they're doing both. Because the concept of the TV show is that you're doing both. Mm -hmm. um, you might you might not have a great answer. So I, I am I am I don't I don't think of myself as a very confrontational sort of person in general. I avoid conflict with with all of my being. So when I do hear conversations, I'm, I'm going back a, a few steps in the conversation. Um, when we do find that we have uh, like a conversation that breaks out during the game or um, somebody, I've, I've had it where people are, you know, so into their own story that they it, it goes on for more than their allotted one-sixth or one-fifth of the screen time that they right. should have. It, besides just telling them to, to shut the F up, is there a, you know, what's a, what's, what is a, have you, have you found a way crazy telling, way? Telling them to shut the F up yeah. is bring it in for a landing. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, rather than telling them to stop doing something, you're telling them to do something, which is to wrap up the scene, right? Yeah. Um, sometimes I will even in drama system, particularly in Hill Folk, I'll just give the, you know, wrap it up signal. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, yes, there are people who are loquacious and if you don't edit what they're doing, they will keep going forever. Uh, mm -hmm. But you can do it in a totally kindly non-confrontational that's way. yeah that's I, I have yet to find that exact one i like the idea of the wrap it up system the, the, the one i tend to do is i usually immediately call on that person to make some kind of role for something <laughs> like i try to i try to immediately draw them back in hey you're you know and and addressing them by their character name you right know. yeah, yeah so that's the a, old, a snake falls out of the tree at you and interrupts your monologue thing but you know <laughs> right. not every tree realistically has a snake in it so right right um, yeah I don't, not necessarily dropping rocks on their head but i might right. i might and, and i, I might have them discover a new piece of lore that they didn't know about her right and the sort of broader lesson that i would uh, uh describe that as is never be afraid as gm to break character and and discuss things in terms of what's fun for everybody like just 
be straightforward about what it is that you're doing. Uh, there is sort of a tradition, particularly from the original generations of D&D of, oh no, you can never talk to your players about what it is that you're doing. You always have to work through the world, right? So yeah, okay, so I have this thunderbolt in them. Or you could just say, you know what? Nobody else is enjoying this. Let's right. move on. Right. Or, right. you know, or wrap it up or whatever it is. Or, you know, yes, you could do that. Uh, but if you do that, um, all I can see ahead for you is a session of your character and everybody else getting horribly punished. I can't see a realistic way out of this that everyone will enjoy. So how about you not do that? Right. How about you find a way to take one of these three interesting steps? Mm -hmm. And so that's, uh, you're no longer describing the world, you're talking creatively right. about what it is that you're doing in order to achieve an effect that yeah. uh, lets everybody have fun. And that's, the you know, being direct is also part of pacing, mm -hmm. right? Because if you interrupt a soliloquy to have a snake fall on somebody's head, well, the mm -hmm. snake falling on somebody's head doesn't really advance the narrative either. Mm -hmm. right. it's, it's another dumb workaround that wastes time. Right. So uh, one way to, to pace games successfully is to uh, directly, politely, nicely, supportively uh, explain what it is that you think will be more fun for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, so I read Hamlet's hit points. I loved it. I particularly loved your paragraph in the beginning that said, here's the, par you know, here's the section of the book you can read to pretend you've read this book. How to pretend you've read this book. Yeah, I've, wonderful. I've got a follow-up to Hamlet's hit points uh, coming out next year. Uh, awesome. as a general writing guide, because a lot of people over the years, including uh, some well-known uh, uh, folks in Hollywood, have told me, this isn't a role-playing book. This is a writing book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so uh, I've written a version of it that is just exactly that. And it, too, has a how to pretend to <laughs> It's a very valuable, yes. a very valuable section of a book to have. Um, so it's been about seven years since you wrote that, and you just mentioned that you have another book coming out. But in in particular, to the concepts that you that you have in that book, and it's uh, and 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 how it approaches role playing games in particular, uh, have you do you have any new thoughts on the topic since uh, since the time you originally wrote it? I've always assumed that I would come across something that I would think of as another newbie, that there would be something. So uh, briefly for the viewers. Um, what Hamlet's Hit Points does is it breaks narr uh, narrative down into all of the little moments, the beats that make a story work and that allow you to create an emotional rhythm. And so the two main beats, there's a procedural beat, that's one in which the characters are trying to deal with an external obstacle like a rock rolling toward them, um, or dramatic beats in which a character is interacting with one or more other characters in an attempt to have an emotional need met. And so, uh, you know, when Indiana Jones goes to talk to, to Marion to try to get her uh, information from her and then she's bringing up their relationship, that's a dramatic beat. And there are other sort of minor uh, key beats. There's sort of three that deal with the way information is handed out. And there's another few as well. And I always thought that I would one day be watching a piece of narrative and go, oh, I, a whole I new forgot one. The, the snickerdoodle beat or what have <laughs> you. But uh, no, actually, I, 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 to my surprise, I haven't. The thing that uh, Beating the Story, the book about writing discovers or talks about is the types of transitions between scenes, which is not really an issue in role playing because you never, scenes change all the time just by your saying so. And it's mm -hmm. sort of uh, subliminal and it's not something you have to work on. Whereas in uh, narrative, particularly in, in uh, film and TV and a little less so in uh, prose fiction, uh, the transitions are everything. Right, the whole reason Citizen Kane works the way it does, even though it's uh, an earlier example of an incredibly fragmented narrative, is that every single transition between moments has this bravura thing that carries you through uh, two things that would otherwise be uh, unrelated to one another. Mm -hmm. And so that talks about the, the strength of, and, and in, pa in pacing fiction, some transitions are much, much stronger and more compelling than others. And mm -hmm. um, if you see a movie that is kind of dull, sometimes it will be because it has it has failed to have an emotional rhythm. But uh, but that's a kind of a rookie mistake or a mistake that people make misguidedly on purpose. Mm -hmm. um, whereas uh, not having strong transitions between scenes is a much more common uh, problem, and it's much more why you are. Uh, transported by one, uh, you know, big blockbuster entertainment, and another one seems like a big thudding, clunking uh, thing that never gets off the ground. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so you have obviously a bunch of role playing games that you've written and worked on since writing Hamlet's Hit Points, and probably you've had this idea even longer than that, I would assume. Right. Um, can you talk about how uh, those concepts have worked their way into the mechanics of the role playing games you have, like uh, Hill Folk and and upcoming uh, Yellow King? Right. So Hill Folk uh, is a game that basically tries to create an experience that's all about dramatic scenes. It's about emotional interaction, and when you play it, it has a structure that sort of creates something that feels like an episode of a uh, serialized TV drama like Breaking Bad or uh, The Sopranos or Mad Men or, or what have you. And the uh, structure of Hamlet's hit points is very much baked into that. But basically, I was when I was designing that, I was describing it as the practice that Hamlet's hit points describes. So the way that uh, dramatic scenes break down, where there is a petitioner, a character who wants something, and another, the grantor, the character who either grants their desire or rebuffs it, uh, is essential to the way that the scene structure of Hellfolk is, is built up. And also the fact that uh, procedural scenes, which are uh, very much uh, deprecated in Hellfolk, uh, but when you do play them out, you get a token that affects how well or, or poorly you do, and that you only, you get a red, yellow, or green token, uh, which greatly uh, affects the chances of your success. And you have to spend all of those tokens before you refresh and get them all. And that, again, reflects the up and downness of uh, success and failure. Mm-hmm. And particularly in drama, drama is much more often about the consequences of failure than it is about the rewards of success, which is mm-hmm. what makes something like you know a Mission Impossible movie or uh, a uh, you know the, the latest Spider-Man movie, which are procedural narratives, different mm-hmm. than uh, you know the course of Mad Men. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there are times, certainly, when Don Draper wildly succeeds and achieves dominance, but those mm-hmm. are almost always followed by a uh, sudden emotional wallop, or uh, you know, and he he fails a lot more. Uh, Don Draper fails a lot more than Batman does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, intrinsic to those completely different styles. Of Interesting. I wonder. I wonder if that has to do with our our, our natural bias uh, in loss aversion, right? That we we feel we feel loss much more acutely than we feel the benefit of gain. You know, by like I think it's like a factor of you know an extra third. You know, they've had, there's actually been a whole bunch of studies on loss aversion that shows that we yes. you know losing ten dollars is you know as bad as winning fifteen dollars is good. Yes, and, I wonder if uh, our and, drive to like love stories like Mad Men is because we feel those more. Um, yeah, and, and I think that it's also about uh, something that is more focused on wish fulfillment uh, than uh, which is what procedurals mostly are uh, than on real life, which is what dramas mostly are. Right. Um, <laughs> but that whole idea of loss aversion is is also uh, you asked about Yellow King, and, and it's a gumshoe game, and like all the other gumshoe games, you your success and failure. Uh, is greatly impacted by your expenditure of resources so that you have points associated with your general abilities and you can spend those to add to your die rolls. But that means you have to decide whether you want to spend a resource. And as you pointed out, our brains don't like spending resources. Um, And so every time you spend points on something to increase your chance of success, you are committing to it emotionally. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, very much part of giving you the ability to determine control over when you uh, have an upbeat or when you have a downbeat, which again mm-hmm. is uh, central to Hamlet's hit points. Yeah, it's funny. I, so I, I, I love gumshoe games and I love them particularly because they're so great to jump into at a convention. Um, so uh, um, Night Spike Agents and uh, um, what's the time? The time, the time, the time, time watch. Time watch. I got like time cops in my head because we were all time cops. And, um, you know, I love these. Um, but uh, uh, one of my rules that I keep in my head is if I have any points I haven't spent by the end of the game, I have lost the game. Right. That's like the rule set I put right. in my head. Like, got it. You know, every I you know, I have failed if I haven't burned every expendable resource by the end of this game. So I tend not to have a lot of loss. of when I play. I'm like, spend those points. Yes, but, well, uh, you've you've found the secret, especially in a convention game. You know when it's over. Yeah, right. Like it's over. Like right. I don't lose anything at all. And they're, they're, no one, you don't get anything walking away with a whole bunch of points you didn't spend. Exactly. But uh, some people, you know, right. oh, thank goodness, I still have a lot of stuff on my character sheet, and that just goes to the, you know, the evolutionary power of uh, the insula, the part of your brain that goes, no, we will need this 
uh, this grain for later. We cannot give it up now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, so, so we, we tend to focus on fifth edition D and D on the show. And, uh, I, I personally, well, so, so let me, let me dive into another quick question here. Um, the parts of Hamlet's hit point, and this is probably because, you know, I, I go for the easiest stuff. And the part about Hamlet's, the part of Hamlet's hit points that resonated with me the most and that I kind of grabbed onto the most and felt like, you know, I read it on Wednesday afternoon and by Wednesday night I was able to drop it into my game was monitoring and keeping an eye on the oscillation of helpful, of hopeful and fearful beats. Exactly. And I didn't pay as much attention. I mean, I, I understood the concept, and I, 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 of course, followed every single one of the beats in all three of the movies that you had because it's really important that right. one also. Um, I had to find Hamlet somewhere. And um, I didn't pay as much attention to the scene, to the scene types, to the types of, you know, to, 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 those, to those pieces that I did to the, the up right. the, the upward and and part of that's because I never think about that in I, I know what pacing feels like in a D and D game, um, but I tend not to think of the scenes in D and D under those uh, uh, you know in in those sort of encapsulated uh, scene types. So am I am I missing out? No, and you're absolutely doing things in the in the hierarchy uh, that you're supposed to do them in. The okay. most important thing is just that oscillation between hope and fear, right. of upbeats and downbeats. Mm -hmm. uh, what uh, because no one's going to leave a D&D session thinking, oh, there, there wasn't enough uh, information being given out, right. or there, you know, there weren't enough dramatic scenes. Well, maybe a few players will say, well, I would have rather just stayed in the castle and talked to people. But mostly, uh, it's the feeling of uh, that you uh, of sort of tension and release that really matters. And the uh, now when you're designing. A, those other beats are sort of what you think about beforehand, before you run. So it's like, well, is it all fighting tonight? And uh, is my now it might be, well, everybody in the group loves loves the fights. That's all they're really there for. Problem solved, right? You don't right. have to add any dramatic scenes. But if you have a mix of players at the group and it's like, oh, well, you know, uh, uh, Jimbo always needs to have somebody to talk to and wants uh, to advance his plot line about uh, his uh, his character's uncertain lineage. Oh well, maybe I better drop in a character that he meets on the way to the fight um, mm -hmm. that can advance that plot line and give him a dramatic scene. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, those other things are more about how you analyze narrative and see how they're working. And uh, the uh, way the information and the information scenes, the question. Uh, which is a, a moment in which you, uh, the characters or the players or the audience uh, wants to know something, and then the the reveal, which is when they get to know the thing, um, mm -hmm. or the pipe, which is something where you sneak in a bit of information that doesn't seem important, and then later that all pays off. Those can tell you things about how you give out information in the course of your game, which is A, way more sparingly than most GMs do, B, not in a big block of exposition, C, on a need-to-know basis when people really care. And also, uh, there may be one player in the group who only wants to pepper you with questions about the setting and not get on with the actual narrative. Mm -hmm. And you can give them some answers, but after a while you go, well, that'll come up in the story, or right. we'll get to that when it happens. And so that's an example of how knowing those beats guides you in how to uh, pace the uh, flow of information. But mm -hmm. it's not like you need to sit down and go, well, we haven't had an informational beat for a while. If you haven't had an informational beat for a while, that's great. That means the story is moving, moving along. It needs right. to move along. Um, and a couple of the beats, the gratification beat and the bring down beat, are by definition things that change the emotional color mm -hmm. without actually having an impact on the story. So if you can have zero of those, that's ideal. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, the fifth edition of D and D uh, describes the ideas of the three pillars: uh, combat, uh, NPC interaction, and exploration. Um, and you've got uh, you know nine types of beats in in I think right in in Hamlet's hit points. Right. Do, do you generally see a mapping between these ideas? Are they are they kind of separate? You know, separate ways to think about things. Because I, I've I've tended to kind of wire the idea of NPC interaction and combat and exploration. In my in my brain, and I'm, those are the types of scenes I tend to you know to 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 to, to vacillate through when I run it. Right. So obviously, uh, combat is procedural. 
right. NPC interaction uh, hopefully is uh, dramatic, that you actually care about the people you're talking to and what you get out of them. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you don't, sometimes you're just trying to get information. And so uh, exploration, depending on how you do it, may be about the information beats, just about learning things mm -hmm. that then apply to either the fighting or the drama. Mm -hmm. Or they can be uh, other procedural beats into themselves in that, you know, you're going down a corridor and, you know, when you encounter a trap, is that a uh, is that information gathering or is that right. overcoming an obstacle? Well, it sounds right. like it's overcoming an obstacle. Right. So um, I would probably tend to uh, take most exploration scenes and either break them in. They're either um, exposition beats or they're other procedural obstacles that mm -hmm. don't involve... Uh, hitting an orc with a sword, but probably hitting a trap with a sword. Mm -hmm. Do Do you feel if if one is paying attention to those three pillars as they as they as they call them and ensuring that people that we're that we're switching out those you know switching those scene types among those three pillars that we are also rotating through the different scene types or yes. or are we missing are there some that we would be missing if we only if we focus too much on those three pillars are there some scene types that were well, well there's two main beat types and three pillars so by yeah. definition <laughs> hopefully they map at yes. some level right yes so they, yeah. one is one is clearly mapping to one one right. is clearly mapping the other and the other is half and half so yeah yeah, yeah. If you do okay. those you're covered yeah so so that, yeah and then and then if we're thinking about them as as hopeful and fearful um you know, and right. we're, we're oscillating so, between those, then we're... The we're, hopeful trap is the one you disarm. The fearful trap is the one that clamps. <laughs> the one that you don't. Right, yeah. right, right. right. Um, so it feels like uh, in order to best incorporate... Um, well, I, I won't presuppose this. Is there a way that we can plan these beats ahead of time, like during our preparation for our game? Or how do we keep these things in mind when we're actually, you know, before the game has begun? You know, what kind of work can we do to sort of prepare this ahead of time? Um, you can think what is what is the main procedural goal that you're that the players are are going after, and then what are some of the sub obstacles that they'll have to overcome in the way. Mm -hmm. And if there are dramatic scenes, what are the dramatic scenes that fit the story that will compel the particular roster of players and characters? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and when when you're preparing, I, I think you kind of cover a lot of this in in um, uh, uh, certainly in, in Hillfolk. But are there are there particular ways that you cover this when in the games that you've designed? Are there so, some interesting tricks about preparation in, in your books that hit on these ideas? Um, well, for Gumshoe, for example, each different Gumshoe game has a somewhat different uh, adventure structure uh, mm -hmm. so that uh, the uh, horror mystery of the esoterrorists is all about what the apparent situation is and then what's the horrible truth and then how does that take you to a climax? Whereas mm -hmm. the space opera of Ash and Stars, if you know your classic Star Trek, uh, those are often investigations in space. It's they something weird is going on. You do a bunch of investigation, you find out what that is, and then it leads to a moral dilemma. And then the question is, how do I solve the moral dilemma? Mm -hmm. And so um, there's particular guidelines for each of the uh, different games, and that goes to uh, how each of the games, uh, even though they're all gumshoe, inspire a particular different sort of play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so it also feels like, uh, particularly when you're watching your story beats, and, and I know from, from having started to keep this in mind while I'm running games, that it seems to lend itself far more towards improvisation uh, than it does in prep. That, you know, I don't exactly know how the beats are going to go until they start, you know, until they start actually uh, uh, happening. Um, so what are some of the tricks for being able to improvise these beats uh, as we're running the game? Right. Part of it is just to look at, once you look at Hamlet's hit points and look at the three examples, the whole basic idea is just that you will internalize the answer to the question of what is an interesting thing to happen next in a story? Mm -hmm. um, I did a rule set a while ago, called, it was originally called Hero Wars, now it's called Hero Quest. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the idea that was uh, not the first, but was an early attempt to take narrative structure and turn it into a rule set. And the first version that came out, uh, I there's a lot of things where it just says, and then, you know, uh, do what's interesting now. And then it turned out a lot of the potential audience for that game was like, but I don't know what's interesting in a story, <laughs> um, which seems seemed odd to me because we consume so many stories 
that you would think, you would, well, if this was a Conan story, what would happen? What would be mm-hmm. the fun thing that would happen now? Or if this was a Star Trek story, what, what's the thing that would happen now? But people don't have that story sense. They immerse themselves in narrative, and the way that they analyze stories is not necessarily on a, a structural level. So the whole point of Hamlet's hit points is to give you a system to that on the fly gives you an instinctive answer without you even really having to think about it that goes, well, what would be interesting to happen now? Mm-hmm. So uh, if you know there's been a series of downbeats and it's been a while since there's been a dramatic scene, the interesting thing to throw into the mix is a dramatic scene that has, gives you the chance to turn things around. Mm-hmm. Or you know, if you uh, just got walloped in that last fight, what would the interesting thing to be? Well, the interesting thing that can happen is uh, you could have a fight against uh, opponents who, uh, if you defeat them, will lead you back onto the path of victory and away from the, the, the slow of the spot that you're in. Mm-hmm. So um, the ultimate idea is to uh, have you so aware of that that you're not aware that you're making those decisions, that it's just you've just incorporated that into your view of how narrative works. and. You never have to ask yourself what would be interesting, but just something interesting that come to mind. Right, right. Do you think that? Um, and I, 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 well, I'll just ask the question. I, I think I know the answer, but um, that that the same way with the uh, hopeful and fearful beats as well. That that will sort of innately understand that we've been giving the players a really easy time, and it's time to be, you know, it's time to 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 make life difficult. And, or, and, you know, or the opposite, which is it's been a whole slog and they've been beaten down and, you know, it's time that something good happened in their lives. Yeah. You know, does that become instinctive at, as well? If you just look across the room at the players. Yeah, you can. Are they, yeah. are they getting overconfident or are they, uh, <laughs> right. Are they beaten down? Right, right, and right. Often and then, the problem can be that the players talk themselves into believing that things are way worse than they are. Yeah, you sure. Kind of prove to them and the, that the, that they live in a forgiving world of adventure fiction, right. not in a realistic world, right? Of, uh, that, that we're all in where uh, yeah. problems aren't readily solvable by having a guy come through the door with a gun. Right. Um, are there specific ways we can improvise during a fifth edition D and D game? Um, are there specific sort of tools of of fifth edition D and D that we can use as part of this improvisation? Well, everything's built around advantage and disadvantage. Okay. So yeah. Guess so that's what that is up, down, <laughs> up and down beats. Right. Right. Yeah. And those are very that that yeah. That's, that's pretty specific to an individual, right? That that you know you can drop advantage on them if things are going particularly bo- uh, uh, going particularly well. You can drop and, advantage if things are going poorly. You can give disadvantage if things are going going well. And just the fact that you tell somebody they've got an advantage—that's an emotional upbeat unto itself. It's like you've got the advantage because you've got high ground. Even if they then fail the role, that was an upbeat and a downbeat, right? That telling them they have it has the same emotional impact uh, as as the role itself, and and vice versa. Yeah. So one of the and this is this is kind of getting into sort of mechanic-y, probably somewhat boring, um, um, you know, topic of in- encounter building in fifth edition, which is in you know, I think in my opinion, in the opinion of a lot of people, isn't done particularly well. They don't they don't have a great system for determining what kind of you know what number of monsters one should throw at a party of whatever given level. And right. I think they've ever been particularly great. Fourth edition was a little bit better. Blah blah blah. But. Um, so, so I think a lot of people. Um, uh, Matt Colville talked about this on his website. This is something that I've I've talked about. Mike Merles brought this up um, when 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 asked about how he handles it, which is I don't I don't pay any attention at all to encounter building. <laughs> you know, like I, I throw what monsters are you know fit the situation, and it occurred to me that uh, with that idea of like you know not even worrying about necessarily the number of monsters other than what fits the situation that we can also increase or decrease the amount of monsters that come up in play as a way to tweak the hopeful or fearful that right. if they if they go into a room and there's one you know kill giant and he's asleep or he's busy eating half of a cow and not paying attention that is a much more hopeful beat because there's so many different ways we can screw with this gluttonous hill giant than if they go into a room and there's five armored hill giants you know with each carrying a pair of huge axes that are staring right at you when you come into the room you know yes. and and I can yeah as a dm I can sort of as I'm feeling out the group, I can improvise that right i i like I know that hill giants are here because they're in the right. hill giants thing but I don't necessarily know how many, and I don't know necessarily the situation. And if everybody can adjust that uh, uh, in mid-fight, right? That if yeah. you 
if you if they start just mowing down, yeah, more the, people show the, up. The five, yeah, the five guys who seemed really uh, impressive. Well, boom, the door. Oh no, those guys were just the guards for the real <laughs> right. uh, giants. Yeah. Or you they, know, they or pull the bell. They, yeah. yeah, or if they go up and they, you know, they they easily cut the throat of the sleeping giant and they start uh, pulling down the treasure. Well, then the giant's mom shows up and guess yeah. what? You know, right. she's a hydra or something, right? Right. Right. Um, one of the reasons that D&D Encounter uh, Keying has never been successful is just that there's D&D Super Swingy. It's yeah, right. Built, it's yep. built into the resolution yep. mechanic. It's a D20. Yep. Um, and there are also so many moving parts once you get above, say, fourth level yep. that you can't predict how things are going to go. Yep. And uh, the version that you mentioned that, that dealt with that fourth, people didn't actually like that. They want D&D to be swingy and unpredictable. And that's part of, I think, the, you know, on a broader sense, that the thing with fourth edition is that every encounter was really well balanced. Yeah. Well, people yeah. wanted the occasional surprise walkthrough where they killed the giant easily, um, mm. and the time when they had to run like heck away from kobolds who had this cool trap that was wound up leveling, you know, counteracting their three level advantage over them. <laughs> and <laughs> so, uh, part of it is. Uh, you know, once you see a TPK developing, look for a way to, you know, enable them to escape or a reason why the monsters don't pursue them. Mm -hmm. uh, but the very unpredictability of D&D is, is a uh, feature for most people. And so, uh, you know, like Mike, I would not sweat the uh, mm -hmm. fact that there isn't an easy way to uh, predict uh, what an encounter is going to be because that's, that's what people yeah. want. Yeah, yeah, I think, and um, you know, I love Fifth Edition. Absolutely, it's my 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 favorite my favorite RPG, and I think they did a fantastic job. I, I think that they did a disservice by putting three pages of mechanics around something that, like you said, is just too swingy to be able to put any real mechanics around. Right. Well, right. it's and, not D and D if there isn't a big. <laughs> I guess totally doesn't work. I, I guess right. right. There's right. a each edition has <laughs> a thing that totally. And frankly, work. It, this one's an easy fix, right? Unlike. Yes. Unlike fourth, where it's like, you know, I think we gave too much healing to these characters. We're going to have to do a whole new edition, you know. Well, fourth was, it's just, that, that did not work. It's it's the challenge system that yeah. didn't work. Yeah, yeah. I think there was a lot of different little little pieces there, and different people would argue about it. Um so uh, I, I'm a big fan of the the, the, the world games, uh, you know, Dungeon World, Apocalypse World, and games like that. And um, Dungeon World, I, I I know Dungeon World more than I know any of the other various world games. I, are you, I, I presume you're you're familiar with these games. As I'm, well. I'm not super familiar with them actually. So oh, okay. I'm not yet the best person to comment on them. Um, well, there's there's a concept in there, and particularly in, and like I said, I think it's in Dungeon World. I, I know it's a Dungeon World. I don't know if it's any of the others. Uh, that's referred to as the hard move. Um, they have these ideas of hard moves and soft moves. And um, I kind of focused on, on hard moves more because the hard moves are sort of those, you know, bad situations that just occur. And, and particularly, and in, in they, they can be a lot of fun when they're just like bad random circumstances. Like it turns out that you and the mastermind villain you've been trying to hunt both show up to buy sandwiches at the same shop on the same day. Right. And it's like it shouldn't happen, but sometimes weird stuff happens. You know, a hard move is when everything is going smooth. And then, you know, something, the whole thing goes perpendicular. And um, in, in the world games, it happens particularly when people roll really poorly, you throw in a hard move. And, and in the whole fail forward idea, the hard move doesn't end the game. The hard it just move takes it in a weird, unexpected right, direction. Right. You had the perfect heist. And then, you know, you broke in and it turned out it wasn't there. Somebody had already right. stolen it, whatever the because MacGuffin in is. In the narrative, it's uh, if there's no reason for the, if the G, if the, uh, hero and villain show up in the same place at the same time for no reason, unless it's like Pulp Fiction, where yeah, well that's a scene that's... suddenly you're dragged down into the basement with a gimp, right? Um, exactly. That uh, and the reason that works is because it breaks the rules of fiction in a really shocking right. way. Right. Uh, that normally we would reject that, but because you've had a, a die roll that explains not in the world but at your table why that's happening, right. you accept that level of crazy sideways coincidence in a way that if it happened in a movie, you would be angrily throwing things at the screen. Mm. Yeah, so that's, there's it, it, it feels like when, when I sit down and I want to come up, you know, just off the top of my head with hard moves, it's not too hard for me to come up with those. I can kind of, you know, generally improvise some or, um, you know, I can certainly throw them in. And they don't, I don't think they really have sort of the opposite. 
you know, of the, the you know, the hard move is almost always considered a fear, you know, would be considered like a fearful beat. And and right. what I'm trying to think of is like the hopeful beats. I don't, it's not as easy for me to come up with that same list of you find a magic fountain that reduces your health or, you know, a, a you know, a, a, a treasure chest is totally unprotected and also contains a really great right. magic. The item. thing is you have to look at what you've already set up in the story mm-hmm. and ask yourself things that are already in motion. What could be the good thing that could come out of that? So mm-hmm. because the examples that you just gave are ones where you the players go, well, obviously we're just being thrown a bone here that just there's yeah, a, right. you know, healing out of nowhere or right. so. But back in the town, you met a guy who seemed kind of friendly to you. And all of a sudden, when you're in trouble, an arrow goes thwack into the back of the bad guy and he kills over. And there's, uh, you know, the guy who you thought was just the magic item salesman. Well, he's also head of the archery league. <laughs> he's decided to throw in with you and he's uh, right. uh, there to save the day. Well, that seems like it's coming from somewhere, that it pays off something that mm-hmm. establishes earlier. So uh, what you might want to do is, in the early scenes of a thing, give uh, one, you mentioned preparation earlier. Well, prepare for a bunch of things that could happen to save the bacon of the players if things go south. Mm-hmm. So set up the guy who might turn out to be the head of the archer league or you know here's uh, or you know you're told by the mysterious elf well if you get to this place uh the legend has it that there's a, a healing potion somewhere in this area and so if you hear this uh singing noise follow it and mm-hmm. so that then is something that people will accept because of course they want to buy into the thing that helps them but that isn't just obviously a deus ex machina that it's something mm-hmm. that you've pre-set mm-hmm. up earlier in the narrative Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, Rob Rob Hainso and Jonathan Tweed in Thirteenth Age have the whole concept of the icon role as well, which is sort of right. another mechanic that you know sixes are real positive and fives are positive with consequences. Um, you know, was that I, I I I have seen you and and those guys in the same booth at many a uh, convention. Uh, is that a bleed over between some of these ideas, or is those you know were they kind of built in? Uh, well, uh, built in isolation. There's a there's a uh, a line of development that starts with Over the Edge, which is Jonathan tweets, and that really was one of the very first, along with Amber, one of the very first story focus games. And I mm-hmm. uh, contributed some setting material to that, and therefore was very familiar with the rules, but didn't uh, uh, design the rules. I did have a set of rules uh, that kind of many years later became Hero Quest, that I think Jonathan may have looked at, um, but. Uh, all three of us have in common a desire to incorporate different narrative elements into it. And so the, uh, you know, your one unique thing mm-hmm. in uh, uh, 13th Age is very similar to uh, some of the things that I've done and have continued to do. And so it is, it's all part of the same uh, design tradition for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd like to take a few questions from our from our folks that have been posting on Twitter and and on Twitch. Uh, as always, we have our guardian angel Alex Basso, who is out there uh, making sure everything run is running smoothly and is here to uh, bring up people's questions. Alex, what questions do you have for us tonight? Okay, uh, first one is from Twitch chat, asked by Sarah. He wants to know: Is there a particular introductory beat you use to establish character relationships during a first session? Uh, what I will sometimes do is ask each uh, player to describe something they are actually doing that sums up uh, who they are and how they solve problems. Hmm. Um, in uh, Hill Folk, on the other hand, uh, what I will do is I will set up a crisis that is something that all of the characters have to deal with. And then that just sort of naturally will then give everybody something to build on as they have their uh, dramatic scenes with one another. So that uh, something that threatens them all and requires them to work together uh, and then but of course their characters are all designed so that it's difficult for them to work together uh, and that will get the story in motion cool uh alex what else do you have here's one from at ian worth on twitter he wants to know, what was your best reveal or twist that you came up for in an, ev- in an adventure or session? Uh, so uh, there are uh, a couple of friends who, uh, uh, my friend 
Uh, Lynn Hardy, who is now an, uh, an editor and a, a writer as well, uh, lived in Toronto for a while and was part of my game group. And then uh, every so often, every you know four or five years, we'll come back and visit. And uh, then she will come and uh, sit in on the Thursday night game. And there was uh, one point when uh, I was running sort of a, a mythic uh, Greek campaign. And so uh, she and, and her husband Richard came in and sat in and they uh, started asking the players questions about what their characters have been up to in the course of this game. And one of the main factors was that uh, it was partially a political game and the one character who was most suited to lead the city was the player and the character who least wanted power. Um, and so because there was the veil of trust with Lynn and Rich, who people uh, either knew or knew uh, of as, as alumni, uh, they then proceeded to tell them all of this uh, weird, skeevy, messed up things that they've been doing for week after week. And the initial feeling of it was essentially of a clip show. Um, and you would think that was would be boring to just recount what was going on in the past, but because uh, Lynn and Rich were bo are both really skillful players and really engaged, they sort of managed to draw them out. It was a lot of fun. And uh, at the end of the adventure, uh, it was revealed that I'd set them up as ringers and it really they weren't who they said they were, but they were uh, Apollo and Diana, who'd been sent down by Zeus to find out what was going on with these heroes in this Greek city who were annoying Zeus, as Greek heroes are wont to do. And therefore, they had been given the mission of uh, handing out uh, one boon and one punishment. And so it wasn't even difficult for them to gather all the information they needed. The players happily told them for hours what else <laughs> they got up to and at the end they revealed this and then uh they handed out a, a boon which i cannot remember what that was but of course the punishment was that the minotaur character had to become archon of the city and mm. then the next session it started with him on the throne he was archon of, of the city so uh, it was a uh, a great uh, uh hose slash reveal for both the players and the characters hmm. That's awesome. Alex, what else do you have? Okay. Kithri210 in Twitch chat asks, uh, given distractions at the table, people being more or less engaged during others' turns, and different amount of re amounts of recall of hints and plots uh, from previous sessions, how often do you think players in the same campaign and session are actually participating in the same story? How can a DM using your beats account for that? Uh, so one of the tricks is to make sure that when you a uh, player is watching uh, something that's going on that they're not directly involved in, that the consequences of it affect them as well. And so, uh, and I always uh, make sure that uh, the players are always present, uh, even when their characters are not. They are not allowed to act on information that their characters don't have, and that means dramatic irony comes into play, that the players know things that the characters don't. And so if you're making sure that all of the, uh, that something's happening in scene A will eventually come to redound to either uh, serve uh, character uh, C or come and bite them in the ass, that that gives the player a reason to be engaged because they know that that's gonna come their way later and they better pay attention as a player in order to be prepared for it as, as a character. So make sure that the threads uh, that you, when, when a scene is going on, throw in something. If a scene doesn't seem to relate to the player who seems a little bored, throw in something that, you know, just casually, yeah, I, I know your friend has a, uh, a question about his lineage and I can, uh, I can help with that if you want. Well, all of a sudden their ears perk up because, oh, the lineage, that's my plot line and it's coming up while they're talking and I'm not even there. I'd better pay attention. Mm -hmm. uh, that's awesome. Alex, what else do you have? James Intracasso would like to know. Oh, we don't take any questions from James. All right. I'm just... well, then next is... No, 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 please. Uh, he would like to know what do you think the best gumshoe game to learn this to start learning the system is uh, to start with? Um, well, gumshoe is super simple, so uh, it's not like any of them are all that complicated. Uh, Ash and Stars and Mutant City Blues and uh, Knights Black Agents are sort of at the higher end of the complexity scale. Uh, Esoterrorists or Fear Itself are uh, very simple and, and straightforward. Um, but really, I rather than 
asking about the learning curve, I would just pick the one where the genre fits the players. So that if they love them some Cthulhu, uh, they know what that template is. They know what a Cthulhu adventure is. And therefore, all they need to then learn is the gumshoe part of that and how that works. And and so Trail of Cthulhu was the gumshoe game that suddenly the light went on for a lot of other people. And, they, and people really started to figure out how the system worked because it paired something familiar with something they were unfamiliar with. But if everybody in the group loves spy thrillers and vampires, do Knights Black Agents. If uh, everybody is looking forward to uh, reality spanning uh, uh, reality horror, uh, Yellow King will be up their aisle. If you want to do uh, sort of something kookier, uh, we have one comic game and that's, uh, and that's Time Watch. So uh, I would focus more on the genre and the experience than about worrying about the learning curve because gumshoe, even the complicated gumshoes are simple. Yeah, I'm, I'm like I mentioned it earlier. I'm a huge fan. Um, Alex, what else do you have? All right, and then uh, last one comes from Rudy Basso. Uh, he just wants to say that King of Dragon Pass is one of my absolute favorite games ever made. Thank you for working on it. Uh, are you working? Are, are you involved in writing for a sequel, Six Ages? I uh, yeah, I'm the lead writer on Six Ages, and so the first chapter contains. Either nine novels worth of my writing, or wow. four core role-playing game books worth of writing. <laughs> so yeah, how many how many words is that? Uh, it's close to a million words. Oh my god! Wow. Yeah, and it's it's really uh, yeah. Six Ages is really exciting. I wish I could spill more beans about it, but uh, the producer David Dunham is, and designer is being uh, very very secretive. But uh, it's extremely cool. And the great thing about uh, that format is that the uh, characters and stories interact with the economic model in a surprising way. So the characters, the playtest reports we're getting back is like, well, this character did this when this was happening with their situation. And that seemed uh, that seemed really dramatic and terrible and awful. And it's like, we didn't plan for that to happen in exactly that way. We knew element A, but then there are all these emergent elements that go with it. So if you like King of Dragon Pass, uh, Six Ages is, I think, even it's a big step ahead even from that because uh, it solves a lot of the design problems that we've identified in King, King of Dragon Pass, and it's a, a cool, new, exciting uh, culture. And uh, also, uh, you know, we've found ways to sort of improve a lot of the uh, basic concepts behind it. So I'm very excited for when that finally comes out. That's great. Well, Robin, I, I feel like I've been reading your stuff as long as I have been playing, you know, RPGs in a modern age. I've had, I remember that I had a copy of Robin's Laws, like a dog-eared copy that had been floating around my house and in, in, in various, you know, in various places and, and beat up for a long time. Uh, Hamlet's Hit Points, when I read it, really resonated with me. I, I, I love it. I've, I read Hill Folk. I haven't had a chance to play it. Um, but I, I really love it, and and I see so many influences in so many different areas that when I when I kind of follow the lead back, uh, lead to work that you that you have done. So I, I really want to thank you for being on the show tonight. Uh, I learned a whole lot. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna you know put all of this up on both the Don't Split the Podcast podcast and on uh, uh, YouTube so that people can 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 get a lot of this. I know so I personally got a lot. people like words and who like sounds. You're, yes, you're, right. You're We're way. trying to hit everybody. We're hitting the young, the young folk with the Twitch these days. Yes. Hitting the slightly older folk with the YouTubes these days. We're hitting uh, podcasts for the people that have commutes. And I, I also write like an old school blog article that has a lot of the tips in there. Well, um, if, if you're a liker of the podcast, it would be remiss of me not to mention yes. uh, Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Yep. Listen which to is it. A I like the very podcast much. that I. Uh, co-host with my uh, partner in crime, Kenneth Height, where we talk about uh, games and game design and narrative structure, all the things we've been talking about tonight, and history and the occult and espionage and uh, even, weirdly enough, food. So uh, that, <laughs> yep. that drops every Friday. So check that out. That's Ken and Robin talking about stuff. Yeah, yep, it's a great a great podcast. And it's uh, any, an any winner, right? It's yes, we've been lucky enough to win four gold any or gold anys for that. That is that is outstanding. Uh, where else can people find you on the net, and what else would you like to plug tonight? Um, I've I've successfully plugged everything so far, but for future <laughs> plugs, uh, you can find me on Twitter at at Robin D Laws, uh, and that's probably the best place to uh, to find me. If you're a Facebook person, just to follow me on Facebook. All my posts are public. 
um, or even on the Google Plus, I'm on there as well. Excellent. And when is when is Yellow King uh, hitting hitting shelves? Uh, our announced delivery date uh, for that is December 2018. Excellent. Excellent. Oh wow! So it's a, it's a it's a, a a bit bit of a ways off. Well, uh, with the Kickstarter, people yeah. gave me a bunch more stuff to write. So yeah, I'm right. go write that. I know that. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you again for being on the show. It's been an absolute right. pleasure. You're most welcome. I had a blast. Take care. Uh, all right, thanks a lot, guys, for listening. We'll be back uh, streaming next Wednesday at 10 p.m. Eastern with the Venture Maidens podcast. Take care, everyone.